a Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Great to have you with me. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco for another week. And my guest on the pod this week is Charlie O'Brien. Now you might remember earlier in the year, I went on a bit of a road trip through Queensland. Some time in Brisbane, some time on the Gold Coast, some time driving between Brisbane and the Gold Coast to chat to a whole pile of motorsport identities. And one of them was Charlie O'Brien. Of course, he's synonymous with the Gold Coast. He's been there for a very long time and that's where I sat down and caught up with him. Now this is part one of a two-part chat. These are our final two episodes of 2022. So on this one, part one, I talk with Charlie about all sorts of motorsport, how he got into racing as a youngster, and when I say youngster, I mean as a real youngster, you'll find out why. We talk about, too, his late great friend, Greg Hansford, and a range of other motorsport topics from over his career. I think you'll really enjoy this sit-down chat. So let's barrel into it. Buckle up. It's time to start part one. Charlie O'Brien on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. Charlie O'Brien. Hello, welcome. It's good to see you, mate. It's been a little while. We've uh, finally got together for a V8 Sleuth podcast. We're sitting by the water on the lovely Gold Coast. How long has this been going on for this weather? I'm from <laughs> Melbourne. I don't know what this is like. This is weird. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you wanted to come up here coming back a year or so ago. Yeah, I know. We couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> I couldn't go past my local milk bar. <laughs> uh, I'm glad it's uh, more relaxed and uh, we can get on with somewhat uh, of a normal life and hopefully um, the past is in the past. Mm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Mate, yeah. there's, there's so much to talk about here because when we put it out to the world that we're going to have you on the pod and we get questions in from our readers on socials and our listeners as well, it lit up with all sorts of topics and cars and memories and thoughts and I reckon you got to read a few of them there. So you've actually got ahead <laughs> of the curve compared to some of our other guests who don't know what's coming a bit later on in this. But um, there's so many things to talk about. But is it right that you started racing at 13 when you shouldn't have been racing? Is that right? Yeah, well, I, I, I grew up on a farm up in the Gold Coast and you know, I had a, my first car was when I was about seven and I had a, a number of cars because I kept wrecking them or hitting cows or whatever. So um, it was an early – I started quite early and uh, Speedway was an option where you could get away with and I, I started that at 13 at a Surface Paradise Raceway. Because there was a speedway inside the racetrack, was a speedway wasn't inside, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that happened when I was 13. Uh, did it for a couple of years and they asked for – for some reason they asked for a driver's licence, which I couldn't produce. <laughs> what, they'd forgot to ask that for the previous <laughs> <Yeah>. two years? <laughs> well, I wasn't a small chap when I was 13. I got you six could foot, have passed for a bit I was older. six foot tall then anyway. So, so I got away with it. But anyway, somebody dobbed me in. And um, so I had to take a little sabbatical and went away and – my brother was racing at the time and he's his name is John O'Brien and but he raced under the name of Joe O'Brien. So he stopped racing when when I was asked to go away. So I'll grow a moustache, I'll look like Joe and I'll come back under Joe and uh, which is, which cut his little motor racing short. I was going to say so what did he go as? He, he couldn't get he had no name. He took it. Yeah. So yeah that's how it kept on going. So a couple more years with Speedway and and then I bought a, a, a Toyota GTR and did it up a little bit and did some rallies and did the Southern Cross Rally at Coffs Harbour and Queensland events and local events. And so I did that for a couple of years. And so I guess my whole early career was not normal in a sense. So I, I wasn't on, I was certainly too big for a go-kart. So it was speedway cars and rally cars and, and, uh, and car control felt 
pretty normal um, mm. of sliding around you know, farmland and, and, and speedway tracks. And at this point, this is just fun. There's no, I'm going to make this my career or it's just, oh. Oh, well, it's good fun, I'm into it. No, I remember somebody taking me to Lakeside when I was nine-year-old and watching Gagan and, and Beachy. And I remember sitting in the back of the car coming home working out how I could be a race car driver. So mm. it, it started a long time before that and, of course, I wanted to – my little dream, I guess, when I was about 13, that period racing Speedway was racing for the Holden Dealer team. Mm. So um, – Yeah, were you racing Holdens in Speedway? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, was it AHs or <laughs> whatever you could find or – I think it was earlier. I think it was, a, I think it was FCs or something. Oh, classy. <laughs> so um, – yeah, I, I was hoping to to get there eventually, but um, that all sort of changed. I guess when when I heard I heard through a local car dealer here, Bruce Linton um, knew that Dick Johnson was selling the Zups or the XU1 Tirana that was sponsored by Zups, and um, so anyway, that phone call was made, and and I purchased that, and that was my first race at an Australian touring car round at Surface in. Uh, in May 74, um, but I had P plates on, so I couldn't run in the main event, but I raced in the... Like in the, the preliminary sort of... Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the lead-up little events and stuff. Yeah, so. yeah. And I won a few races that day and, and, and time out, and it was good having people there from other teams. and So, yeah, sort of... How much did that Tirana cost you? You remember? Yeah, no, that was that was easy. My four thousand bucks, I paid for it, and, what, and uh, when I sold it, I sold it for four, and I thought I was an absolute hero. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell you probably what it might be worth these days because you might not. If think it was that. still around, it'd be probably worth a, worth it worth a few more numbers than that one. I've got a funny feeling that's a thing that's going to pop up over the course of this chat. With yeah, <laughs> where cars are now and what they're worth and what they were worth then and all that sort of stuff. But uh, so who's who's helping you at this stage? Are you doing it yourself? You got some mates, your family? Who's who's getting involved here? No, nobody in the family raced. Um, it was just a passion because I started driving so young on the farm. And uh, when I got that, um, when I got that Tirana, um, it was put it on the trailer myself and towed it to the track. My brother at the time um, was more involved, and I got two brothers. And uh, hang on, Joe and John. So. <laughs> yeah, Joe, yeah, Joe and John. Yeah. Um, so yeah, John would help. Yeah, you know, come to the races and help out, and a, and a friend of his. But yeah, I didn't really have too many friends that was uh, that were, that was into it. it. Was just me. And how are you funding this? Like, is this coming out well, of your pocket? Someone helping? I, I started driving trucks for my brother when I was about seventeen, and I was earning a wage, and I was living at home, and I wasn't paying any rent, and I wasn't paying for food. So pretty well, my whole wage was getting put in the bank to pay for that. I was lucky enough to pick up a sponsor for my first race, and it was a local speed shop. Um, discount tire speed shop at Southport, and they paid for all the tires. So um, and Good. and yeah, you know, and had probably other little things too that I don't remember. But so I had tires there, and Shell came on my first meeting and gave me fuel for the transporter and and that. So it didn't take a, a lot of money to run one of those old cars, mm. particularly when you had free mechanics and stuff. You know, so mm. my truck driving wages was enough to pay for it. Some young racing drivers right now thinking, I'd drive trucks happily if that covered a main <laughs> game drive. That'd be great. <laughs> and then Tiranas was sort of the theme there for a while, wasn't it, with, with the cars that were just, of, of, you know, there was lots of Tiranas going around. Yeah, so. yeah there was. And, and, you know, like obviously in 75, the, you know, the, the SLR 5000 came out and then the L34 and stuff. So, you know, it, it, XU1's really... 
you know, once they sorted out the reliability problems with the L34s and or the SLA 5000s, with mainly, I think, from memory back then, they had problems with um, oil surge because um, they didn't have very good sumps. Mm. So they were blowing a lot of engines because oil wasn't getting you know, sucked wasn't up. Wasn't pumping where it needed to go. Yep. So um, when they sorted out all the reliability problems, it was pretty evident that actually one wasn't going to cut cut it. So you had to keep moving up with it. And uh, I had bought a road car at that stage from a local dealer, an L34, and and um, sent it down to Harry to uh, for him to make it into a race car and. That was about the last I saw of it for about a year and a half. <laughs> it didn't come back. And when it did come back, it was only half finished anyway. So it, it got sat in the back of the workshop there in Auburn and with a cover put over it. And yeah, it was a bit of a pain. But so in that period, I was still running the, the XU1 and doing what I could with that. Mm. The L34, because I've got the memory of looking at the books and it's O'Brien's Transport. So was that the that was the, the family truck business, your brother's truck business? It was it was my brother's business yeah. at the time and what I was I was driving one of the trucks for him. So it was just certainly had no value of putting a name on the car, but it looked pretty ordinary in plain white, so mm. it got a name put on it to make it to make it look more professional. <laughs> professional. <laughs> yeah. well, it's, it's all about the look. It's yeah, all about what it, it looks like, it. not what it is underneath. It's yeah. it's um it's how it is. Yeah, I, the, the, the car ran the first couple of meetings. I think the first meeting for the car was at Lakeside f- for a touring car round, and it wasn't very good. Um, yeah, didn't even go as fast as what they actually wanted to be around Lakeside at the time. Mm. So, yeah, it took a, took a little while to get it going. It eventually went down to Melbourne to live at Gowan Hindoff's workshop for a little bit, and um, that was sort of early 75 when I when I won that race at, at uh, Hammery Park. I was going to say, so... You held the record for I think it was nearly thirty years as the youngest touring car championship winner because you won at Amaru in your own car yeah. in seventy six. Uh, Rick Kelly. It took until Rick Kelly in two thousand and three when he won Bathurst to break that record and have a younger winner in the championship. So it's a long time to hold on to that one. But that was only your fourth Australian touring car championship round, and you won it. So the, as a privateer doing your own thing, which these days. Unheard of. That, that's a cool moment to be well, able to look back on. It was fun. But, the, you know, the thing is, look, I, I, I didn't have the money to, to do all the rounds. And I think if you looked at or over all the years of the Dream Car Championship, <clears throat> maybe one year I did the whole the whole lot of the rounds. Um, and that might have been 76 or something. I don't know. But, yeah, it was, it was just too hard, too hard mm. to find the money. You couldn't go travelling and, and mm. um, paying for everything and... And you got there and you're running on a shoestring budget, so you weren't running necessarily where you wanted to run anyway. So I picked and choose race race meetings that were easy to get to and, um, and tracks that I liked and stuff, you know. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. How desperate did you have? Talking to lots of people from the era that they sold this to go racing and they did that and they worked this job. And uh, Did you do anything crazy along the way to, to get it to that level? Or did you go, look, if I, if I can't do it, I can't do it and I won't I do remember it. I wanted a, a better car when I was about 11 year old. That doesn't make you any different from any other racing no, driver. No, 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 that's right. 
And I, but the only difference was that I sort of grew up on a farm and I, I rode my grandfather's favourite horse down to the next door neighbour and sold it to, to the neighbour. And <laughs> what? Uh, he I, I'm a, presuming not under his instruction. No, 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 nobody knew about it. But then I had to walk out to what is now called um, Bigger Waters or at Harbour Town where there was a wrecking yard and I knew the, the guy that owned it because I went to school with his, with his kids. And I walked up and said, um, do you have a car that's, that's any good that I could buy? Because I had a pocket full of cash from selling the horse. He said, yeah, I actually do. Cars just come in. And it was, it was like a 20,000-mile-old FJ Holden, but it was rusty as anything, sitting on the beach at surface. But it was like new. So I was pretty happy. He gave me a gallon of, gallon of gas, and I drove it out of the backyard of the wrecking, <clears throat> the wrecking yard of Bigger Waters, <laughs> and drove it home through practically my grandfather's farmland and came in through the back gate and drove up on the hilltop and I remember mother, mother walking out to the steps of the house and I'm driving a car, I'm not on a horse. And you left on a horse? I left on a horse, I came back in a car. <laughs> so I had to explain to her that Honey the Horse was now sold to Mr Groves down the road. <laughs> <laughs> so I needed that car to go faster because the one before that was very slow. Yeah, yeah. Now that's a, well, probably not the way I would have thought that <laughs> most people would go about getting to that faster car. But, you know, well. There was, I, I had, had to do whatever it took. Had to trade whatever, wherever, yeah. however. So um, the dealer team stuff, you said about sending your car down to Harry and all that stuff. These podcasts, the constant theme of talking to people is the roller coaster, the up and the down. Mm. So the up of seventy six, you know, you win around the touring car championship. You know, at, at, so I think what you're twenty at that stage, like you're pretty young still. Yeah, you know? twenty or twenty one. Yeah. yeah, and then the opportunity to drive for the dealer team comes along. How did that all happen? Um, well, I after that they asked me to drive it. Well. Um, Joe Felice actually called up on a Christmas Eve and, and asked because I, I, I drove at Sandown and Bathurst <clears throat> and uh, and no, there were reasonable results that we got um, in at Bathurst in in seventy six. So Christmas time, I was asked, "Would I like to be a full time driver?" And that was the day before Christmas, so it was a pretty good Ooh, Christmas that's a, present. Yeah, that's a hell of a considering that this is what. Well, Banging around Speedway and Surface Paradise, this is where you want to go to. That's what I wanted. So yeah, it took, um, I don't know, call it uh, eight or nine years to get to get, to manifest that in a sense. But I, I, you know, I did everything I possibly could. I, as I said, I, I worked long hours. I saved up the money. I put it all into the car. I didn't, didn't pay for anything else. I didn't go out. So, yeah, I, I think that I, I couldn't have done any more to get to get to where I wanted to be, you know. But of course, that all changes when you get there. You have these high hopes of of getting there, and it, it didn't turn out the way that um, that I thought it would. So you turned up as Harry was going into his last year, and he knew he was going into his last year. So the deal, and at so at the same time, Moffat gets Bond, and yeah. the Falcons absolutely wipe everyone. So you, of all the years you could have gone to the Holden Dealer it team, it, it wasn't, wasn't the right year, was it? It wasn't the good. It wasn't the right year, but yeah, it. And I'm not. You know, I know Harry was told that it was his last year at the beginning of that year, so not a lot of money got put into the cars. And uh, certainly I remember John used to get a set of tyres every weekend for the races, and John Harvey does. And I'd run on John's tyres from the weekend before, so, <clears throat> yeah, you weren't going to do much with that. So it didn't give you a lot of excitement. Mm. So, um, But it is what 
it was it was okay. It was better than riding horses around the farm. Trying to trade up some horses around the farm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. And we talk so much about modern drivers with the the ups and the downs and the picking yourself back up off the floor. What picked you back up? Because clearly the next year, Harry was gone, you were gone, Brock came back, John Shepard took over. <laughs> so what was your next move? Because you, you went and got a, another car, didn't you, yourself? Oh, yeah, I, I did, I think. It was that time I bought the Ron Hodgson four-door A9X and, uh, and you know, that was set up well and they passed it on. I don't, I, they certainly didn't... Um, I didn't get screwed over with the purchase of it, and the car was was fast, and I was able to compete at another level with that A9X. Um, so that was that was good. Um, yes, as you said, Brock went back to the Holden Diddle team, and and John took over. John asked me to drive um, a couple of races that year. That was '78, um, and I'd had some good results with with my own car that year leading up. So I was quite confident about going into the new vamp, revamped team um, with with uh, with them all. And um, what happened then? Uh, well, it's quite interesting. I remember going forward many years. I was racing NASCAR at Melbourne, and John Shepherd was building, rebuilding the motor one night in the in the NASCAR. And we're talking in his workshop, and I, I asked a question about the Bathurst '78 crash that I had. And John freely admitted, said, yes, a tie rod end broke while I hit the Amco. And I find it interesting that he's come out in different things and he's, he clearly forgets the, what he said to me in his workshop building the NASCAR motor. And, you know, it's interesting enough, getting blamed by a team manager <clears throat> for crashing the car at that 78 Bathurst is one thing, but something happening, again, that affected my career in a sense because mm. you know, other people believe important people. You were just a driver that's making excuses, but when he when he said that to me, and the, I, I knew because you know, you know that when the car goes through the dipper, it continues to go through the dipper for a little bit before you understeer off and hit the wall, or as it takes the full compression, something breaks in your hands and it goes straight ahead. Mm. So yeah, a driver knows that. But was that a bell ringer? Because it. Yeah, I what I remember at the time, like, were you knocked out or was you, would it have been doozy anyway? I, don't, I, was not, I got out of the car, I was sitting on the fence and that's when Peter pulled up and said, came over and said, mate, I think you need a lift down, can, <laughs> can I give you a lift? So, um, yeah, it, it certainly gave me some concussion because the next morning I remember jumping over the fence in the, the old Bathurst pits and landing on my feet and my head hurt a lot, so mm. concussion was still there. Concussion protocols, not really a thing like they are now in modern sport and, no. and footy and that sort of stuff. It was like, well, he's awake, he's here, he's driving, so it's yep. on. So yep. Yep. Um, so the, the – oh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I've never seen vision of this is that earlier that year you and John, Harvey that is, won the Rothmans 500 at Oran Park, which yep. was a, a 500K enduro that had been created because, you know, Bathurst was Bathurst, Sandown was Sandown. Mm. But Oran Park wanted to have its own touring car kind of mm. big money event, and that was it. And wasn't that the one where he ran out of fuel and had to run back over to the pits and grab yeah. some juice and go back and fill it up? And you yeah. guys came from miles behind, and you won. Yeah, and and John said at the time, he said, "Forget that we actually um, we just lost those few laps." And he said, "Just get in the car and drive it as hard as you possibly can." So, so you don't, did. Don't, don't even think about what happened, and so I did. And um, 
we both obviously drove it pretty hard. Yeah, admittingly, there was cars breaking down. So um, don't ruin a good story, Charlie. No, no, Come no. on now. But it was uh, it was it was a good win, and it's uh, certainly. I remember back in those times, John had set up a deal that the four main mechanics and the four drivers shared in the prize money. And I was thinking at the time, this is really sucks, because you know, we we got a lot of prize money that day, and uh, so we had to share it with yeah six other people. And it all turned around at Bathurst. Brock won a record amount and we shared. <laughs> there you go. See, sometimes it just comes it just the other way. It comes around now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so get the Gowan Hindoff roadway stuff, that's the sort of the next step, isn't it, in your touring cars? Yeah, I got on well both with Bruce and Norm. And um, um, I think Bruce was certainly pushed for me to, to be part of it. You know, it's probably a bit hard because, you know, Garth and Ian were from Tasmania and I didn't get to see them that often. So it was probably more the fact that Bruce and I, at that stage, I had association with running a car out of the workshop for a few races back when I won that round. So, yeah, I, I credit that to Bruce while I was with them there. And um, yeah, it, was, it was a great time um, mm. race, racing the team. You know, it was inevitable that eventually... Um, Ian's son was going to come on board and he'd be wanting to take over driving it and that's pretty well what happened. Um, Bruce um, yeah, met with his fate in, in uh, suicide the day after Bathurst mm. and um, we, I think I had one more race. Um, you know, I talked to Norm about running the car at the Surface Paradise Manufacturers race and Norm thought it was fitting so we should so we ended up coming up there and, and uh, winning that race um, well, that was the second time that was in the Commodore. I've actually missed a year there because the year before was the Phillips A9 Xs. Mm, yep. So, yeah, um, so I'm a year ahead of myself. The, 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 the Phillips year was good. We had some really good results. Um, there were the blue and black and white blue, blue A9 white X Tiranas, ripping cars, cool cars. So we had some great um, results throughout the year over there, lakeside and surface and did you guys crash into one at the Sandown in Jerome? Yeah, yeah, we did. What we happened did. there? Well, we came up on a dolomite. As you do. And um, Kids at home, a dolomite is a triumph. <laughs> it was a car from the 70s. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, we came up on this dolomite at the end of the straight and uh, Garth went around the outside or, or vice versa and I went to the inside. And as we got around, like, you know, we were sort of abreast of each other and, and we – basically came back in to get the next line ready for the next corner. So, um, yeah, we end up sort of uh, clipping wheels and climbing over the top of each other, So, which is a bit unfortunate because, again, they were com- both the cars were very competitive and running at the front of the field. The, the Tiranas disappeared, the Commodore came along, so there was the, you know, the, the next year, yeah, you won that Surface Paradise Enduro later in that year as well. With the Commodore, I think the first race that I did in the Commodore was a Surface Paradise when they first ran with no rear spoiler. Yeah, that's right, the VB Commodore, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, so we ran at Surface, I finished second in the first race for the car. Um, and then it developed on after that. And um, <laughs> Bathurst was interesting. At that time, it was, a, it was a mandatory thing. You had to put a kill switch in the car. And I was down in the workshop in Melbourne and they're putting a kill switch between the seats on the centre console behind the sort of where the handbrake was. 
And that I, smells like to me I that's going to get hit. I, I, I did. I questioned. I said, why do you have to have it there? Why not have it on the dashboard? I don't remember why why it had to go there, but it, it ended up going there for sure. And, of course, after the start of the race, I think we were fifth from the grid, and after the start of the race, going up Mountain Straight for the second time, just changing gears, you know, um, um, the back of my hand where your glove was sort of, I didn't even feel it. And it just, it was one of those red buttons that you push down that stayed down. Killed the motor. I had no idea. Had no idea. And it wasn't until half a lap later, I still had my helmet on trying to work out what was wrong. And Bruce said, the kill switch, the kill switch. So sure enough, that was it. So fired it up and uh, and, and carried on racing. Uh, you know, at the end of the race, I think we were, there's two laps to go in the race. We are running third. So clawed our way back, running third. And Garth got a flat tyre on the last lap. <laughs> so we end up finishing fifth. Old so. Bathurst just sticks it to you again, doesn't it? It's it's that place. Bathurst just that, when you think you're going good, mm, well, Hasn't been kind. No, but it's it's a common thread. It's not kind very often to very many. No, it's no, no. It's um, whoever writes the scripts, <laughs> real good at it, really good. In, in this era, Charlie, is this are these paid drives or are these your help and run it or is this – proper engagement or are you doing other things to supplement your world or is it, it, it is all in run racing? It, it wasn't a paid drive, but it was a drive that wasn't costing me money. Yeah. And so really it was like a win-win. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. I didn't get any money for driving until you end up being co-drivers at Bathurst and stuff and mm. then you got paid some money for turning up at yeah, mm. Sandown Bathurst. Whereabouts along the way does Greg Hansford come into your world? I'm so mm. intrigued to to hear some about him because I know you know you guys were close and um, his sons and um, he's you know sadly departed before I kind of came onto yeah, the, the yeah. scene a bit but I watched and read and 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 really consumed a lot but where does where do you and Harry go back because it's what 70s up here on the coast I think I was I was coming back from a sand down in 75 and uh, I was at the Melbourne airport and waiting to catch a flight to Brisbane and he was sitting there in his jacket, in his green jacket, and you know I was pretty shy at that stage, and it was a bit unusual, I guess, for me to to, to go and chat to such a superstar. Because he was like, when you say oh, green yeah. jacket, Kawasaki yeah, green, yeah, like he, he was a motorcycle guru. Yeah, yeah, he was a guru. And so anyway, I, I went up and sat down next to him and introduced myself. Um, we, we flew up to Brisbane together on the flight. I ended up going around to his family place for dinner that night. Well, invited yourself to dinner. <laughs> yeah, well, he, no, he said, no, you better come home. So anyway, going around there, I, I've actually got to tell you, I think I even stayed there first night wow. and drove home the next morning. <laughs> so we sort of hit it off obviously pretty well. So and that was, that was 75 and 76. Um, yeah, he well, he loved cars. Like he was just a petrol head in the road, you know, getting speeding fines everywhere. He had an XA course Kawasaki Green XA GT Falcon. Makes sense. And um, he wanted to um, he wanted to drive some cars and but see Bruce Allison and Greg and myself we used to if Bruce was racing Greg and I'd go and watch him race. If I was racing they'd come watch me say vice versa. So I introduced him to Alan and he started getting more and more interested and then not long after that he went to Europe or seventy seventy eight I think he went to Europe racing Kawasaki in 79, so he was he was away, but he'd, he'd sort of met people that he wanted to meet maybe before afterwards, and 
when he busted his leg over there and and um, nearly nearly died on a on a plane the way home from blood clot. Oh, really? We, which that was what got Ronnie Peterson, the Formula oh, One driver, clot, after yeah, that crash yeah, in Monza, yeah, no, about he, the same time, seventy eight. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, nearly nearly got him on the way home. So he came back because um, he, Greg and Moffat had. I think Greg had done a little bit of Moffat Falcon driving and got his license and a bit of that sort of no, stuff. No, he actually so got his license at Phillip Island, my car, in oh, 76 at the Rover, right, the, the Rover the, 500. At the end of the season. Yeah, right. In that long distance race. Yep, yep. So he actually got his license there, so he had it. And then I let him have my car to drive at Calder the weekend after. So he actually that was his first race in my car at Calder. Uh-huh. So, yeah, and he met Alan and they got on well and, and Greg was good friends with Colin Bond and... So yeah, it, it was all it all sort of gelled right for him to to mm. go to go that direction. Um, yeah. So yeah. did you introduce him to Moffat? You're yeah. the link man. It's all your fault, <laughs> <laughs> basically. <laughs> Pretty well. I can't remember whether I introduced him to Alan or I, certainly to Colin. I did, and and uh, and then maybe Colin took him to to Alan. But mm. yeah, no, they all got on pretty well, and and um, he had some good years, I think, with with Alan. Yeah, Mazdas and yeah. yeah, Sierras and yep. and all that stuff along the way too. So, yeah, and it, the, the relationship would have been good because you know, Greg was quite mild and you know certainly not confrontational and give him what give him something to drive and he'd go and drive it and he wouldn't and that at the time would have suited Alan because Alan sort of certainly wanted to do it his way and you wouldn't be you wouldn't be changing anything. <laughs> Just a little intense, I get the impression. No. <laughs> I think we probably all were. <laughs> Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. How I mean, Greg went on and won Bathurst with Larry, won the twelve hour with Mazda with Crompo. Uh, I, you know, there's been guys who've done the swap bikes to cars, or you know, not very often it goes the other way. But clearly, just an innate talent and skill without the huge ego that some of them have that come along with it. Like it's, yeah, it's amazing. I don't think we'll see anyone do that sort of thing again. Yeah. The true champion of Bathurst is somebody who wins on two wheels and four wheels, isn't it? That's, that he should be that how too. it is. Yeah. And he didn't just win once at Bathurst on two wheels. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, no, I think he was quite a remarkable driver and and, uh, and smooth, smooth to go with it. Mm. Um, certainly deserved everything that he, he um, achieved in the early days. And, you know, it's just... You know, Driving a front-wheel drive car wasn't his nature because he's been a rear-wheel drive person. You know, it was sliding around Mount Cuther in his GT Falcon you know, <laughs> early days, and so he had car control you know, coming out of his ears, but only rear-wheel drive car. So it was certainly the front-wheel drive that caught him out at Phillip Island, um, and having no rear no rear spoiler on those early cars, on those early Mondeos. Because that was the, I was going to ask you about that, the 95 two-litre championship mm. opener at the island when he, he had the crash and, and Sally was killed. And because you, you were driving a BM, you were in the two-litres yeah. at that time. Is, is that the worst day in your motor racing career that you would have had? Yeah, because that race was, for some reason, was held up 
and we'd done the warm-up lap and came around and sat on the start line and got our back out. So it was, we were probably there for 25 minutes, so the tyres would have... All cooled right out. Cooled yeah, off. Yeah. Um, and it was his first race, and I was up at Lakeside when he was doing some testing. But again, as I said, you know, like when when a front wall car <coughs> you know, is going to oversteer, it's sort of the opposite of what you do in a rear-wheel drive car. Mm. And at the crucial moment of turning into turn one at 200 kilometres an hour, um, it got loose. Mm. And what he needed to do probably was boot it and try to break traction in the front to balance it out. I don't think he did that. Mm. And so the car overtook um, at the time and, and went into the into the barriers um, on the on the outside of the track, but um, on the inside of the corner, but the outside of the track. Well, the barriers are 10 foot thick of rubber tyres. Mm. And the car hitting that at 180 kilometres an hour didn't really do a lot of damage to the car because the tyre wall absorbed inertia. Mm. If it's an Armco wall or concrete wall, the car would have hit it and would have absorbed the inertia by squashing up and doing major damage to the car. Well, the tyre wall took it, so it rebounded him back on the track. Mm. If it was a concrete wall, I don't believe he would have rebounded back on the track. Mm. And, you know, that's the same thing like if you throw an orange against a brick wall, it'll absorb the inertia and fall down the ground. Mm. Throw a tennis ball against the wall, it'll rebound back to you. Mm. And that's exactly what happened there with the car. So it came back on the track. And at the... uh, you know, at the coroner's um, report on on that, that's exactly what I said. And you know, I said, you know, if if there's nothing wrong with the tyre barrier, when it's going to stop you from having a, a frontal head-on mm. at the end of a main straight, and you've got no runoff area, perfect. But not on not on a track like Turn One. So I'm glad they made changes to it after the Fox family bought it and spent the money on the track and made changes because. Otherwise, that could only happen again. And as we see with Formula 2 at Spa and, and pretty well any motor racing accident, you know, Bathurst as well, <clears throat> with Mark Porter and stuff, the most danger in motor racing of getting seriously injured or killed is by getting hit in the middle of the car. Mm. So there's one way to fix that, is stop the car from coming back on the track. Mm. But mm. You... Were you in front of all it or behind it or where were you in that I was mix? just in front, but I was, you know, I saw the flash of a car going different directions behind. So I was trying to exit the corner and I was watching it all in the mirror and then all of a sudden there's just so much dirt and dust that that um, you wouldn't have seen him spinning. But, yeah, the car was spinning like a, like a spinning top. Mm. It was spinning so fast that, you know, he could have been hit in the boot, could have been hit in the front, could have been hit in the left side. Mm. Just so happens you got hit in the driver's side door, mm. which is the most vulnerable, difficult. Well, to, particularly in those cars, yeah. there's very little roll caging in, yeah, in those Mondeos. You know, and like if you, you know, 1995, 2022, you know, looking at supercars, they've been moving the driver yeah. inboard as far yep. as they can get as as the can. protection down the side, and yep. there's only so much you can do if, you know, short of. You know, barring up the whole thing to get into it, like you'll never get out of it. That's you know, it's just how it is. It, it, it's difficult. So you can continue to do that, or you can work on track limitations. Like if you, you know, really, at uh, 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 this conversation with people <clears throat> that 
as much as I love Reed Park at Bathurst and everybody in Australian motor racing loves Reed Park. But you could actually, if you wanted to, shift the crowd back 100 metres, put trapping in, sand trapping in, so that when a car comes off at the grate, it stays goes off. through the sand, goes over, hits the wall, then it's got 100 metres of sand to come back to the track, it wouldn't get back to the track. For someone to plough into. To plough into. So yeah. if they really, really didn't want that ever to happen again, what's what happened to Mark? And it happened at the 12-hour a couple of years ago. There was a big one that finished the race along similar it types happened of the lines. 12-hour. It, ha- it, it happened to um, Paul Will, who, mm. who was mm. just, just lucky that the car that hit him hit him in the rear door mm. and the rear wheel arch, mm. more so in the middle of the door and the middle at the middle of the door. Mm. So Paul would have, Paul would have been in the same same thing. Mm. So why not fix the track? Yeah. The crowd's not going to really care about being back a hundred meters. Mm. So mm. what's um what do you reckon Greg's legacy is? I mean the resume is awesome. Mm. Yeah. Um what's his legacy? What's the thing that, you know, people didn't get to see him race or have read his names in books and seen honour rolls and stuff like that. What's what's the thing that's the standout about him? Probably beyond that, more the bloke than the, gentle, the racer. Gentle. Yeah. Um, passionate, gentle nature, never got upset, never got angry. It's a Gold Coast chilled out type surfy type he, he was, guy. It, yeah. it, was, it was like, a, yeah, it was like he's going to the beach every day. Mm. And when he wasn't racing, he was at the beach every day. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's that's one of the reasons why he was so good. It's because you're so gentle and didn't didn't let things bother him as much. You know, like well, I'd probably get wound up and be upset for yeah you know, for, for a week after something happening. You know, he'd sort of brush it off. Move on, next thing, whatever. Um, something will sort yeah, it yeah. out. But you know, he um, yeah, you know, he was obviously thought of in, in the motor racing world by many, many legends to be as good as what they are. And um, I remember playing golf with him one day and uh, with him and Kenny Roberts and, um, yeah, the competitiveness on the golf course. Like Greg couldn't – wasn't any better than a 22 handicapper and Kenny Roberts was like three and here they are going head-to-head powering holes and stuff. I'm like, geez, that's that's just that's another <laughs> level of competitiveness. <laughs> Doesn't matter what it is, these races, yeah. you, buddy, you're all competitive at something all the time. Can't lose at anything, <laughs> even if you're not actually good at it. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. the thing. Skip back. We sort of race forward and move the time on, but that's all right. Yeah, that's yeah, what that's we, right. we're allowed to. We can make the rules up as yeah. we go. I didn't see the page where it said there's rules. There. No, no, I'm looking and <laughs> no rules. Doesn't okay, say no so. <laughs> Doesn't say so. Um, oh, speaking of no rules, you were in that HDT race of champions at Calder, weren't you, with all those one-make Brock cars? Yeah, yeah. When they were new. That, that was like a Royal Rumble, wasn't it? From what I've seen in the tape, it looks a little willing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a pretty fun day. I was just... I guess I was just a bit of a dickhead in the second race and I jumped the start. <laughs> hey, I'm not the first one. <laughs> not the last, not the first, no, no. no. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Sliding around on radial tyres. and jeez. They they'd, get, they'd get so much heat soaked heat soak from the motor, um, Not the heat would just start evaporating the carburetor and you start running out of fuel. <laughs> <laughs> like it was a superstar studded. I think it was 12 cars, 11 cars, whatever it was. Jack Brabham, yeah. Dick, yeah, Dick Johnson in a Commodore, which, ooh, that gets a few people's attention. 
Bob Jones, Brock. KB. KB, Jimmy Richards, <laughs> Didier Peroni, the Formula One driver. Uh, Tony Edmondson, I think, was in there. Um, yeah, it was a pretty it was fun, it was a fun day. good way to launch uh, the new HDT Commodore range, that's for sure. <laughs> and, um, I'm sure and I'm sure they didn't lose money on them. Oh, nah, probably not. They probably had to fix up a couple of them, but yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. That's all right. Yeah. One careful owner only driven on a Saturday yeah, and a it. Sunday. Exactly. <laughs> so, open wheelers, because you know you're a tall guy. We talked about that. Why early eighties? What was the what was the premise behind <clears> going there? Um, I don't know. I, I looked at open wheelers as being a pure a pure car to drive. Well, I thought they would be before I drove one. They weren't so pure? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, they're just fantastic. And I'm, I'm not – it didn't help any career move with me because once you you, know, you you move out of the circle, it's hard to get back into the circle mm. and I sort of never did apart from, you know, to Bathurst and stuff. But um, I just want to do it. it. It made me a better driver. It made me understand aerodynamics. It made me understand shocks. It, and it just made me a, a much better driver. And I think the first time I drove again – after that was in Group A um, in the BMW days. And again, running on a small budget, I think we got some great results out of those BMWs and particularly in New Zealand and, and, and here. Um, you know, we finished third in the, in the World Touring Car Round over in New Zealand with, with the BMW. Um, yeah, so it made me a better driver. Mm. It, it made me think about how to set a car up properly. Because mm. it was Formula Pacific, which, you know, the Rolta T4s and yep. that was sort of the, that early 80s yep. sort of era. Um, and I had to have, you know, I had a, good, a very good mechanic on the car which helped um, offset my 90 kilos. And um, six foot, were you, six four? Yeah, well, it wasn't so much a six four bit, but it, but it was is more to the point. You were, you know, you're racing thirty kgs heavier than some other blokes, and you're mm. in the same car at the same horsepower. Yeah. So I had a little bit of an advantage, I guess. Wayne was very good as a mechanic, and and we were always coming up with different ideas. Or he was coming up with different ideas. So he was Alan Jones's Formula One mechanic at the Wayne time. Wayne Eckersley, wasn't it? Yeah. At the time, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um. Is that when you were citizen watchers? How did that all come to be? Did you get some free stuff out of that or what? <laughs> no, that was back in, back in the touring car days when uh, Gary Cook was racing citizen watch Commodore um, and I ended up running the team for a short period of time unsuccessfully, I must say, because at the first big race at Amaru Park, I got punted into the bank and Somebody's tow hook split the fuel tank, and the fuel ran under the under the under the racetrack and into the forest on the other side of the oh. track and lit up lit up Annengrove. Um, so that whoops, yeah, that was a bit of a disaster. And then the same year at Bathurst, I screwed up and and uh, clipped the wall coming out of the cutting. Unbeknown, it cracked the wheel. By the time I got to McPhillamy, uh, half the pressure in the rear tire, and I turned in uh, sort of. Uh, Went into the wall, so I broke my broke my foot, and um, it was a pretty big crash. And then that and that's, comes down to about those Commodores were mixed up uh, because we had to um, roadways had my 1980 car sitting there as a shell, as a spare for themselves. 
So we end up getting that shell and replacing everything over. Sort of car uh, everyone, talk, everyone talks about Dick Johnson's big car swap, but they forgot about your Citizen Watches swap over. It was pretty big. You did it before he did it. Was, it was old hat by the time he got to it. <laughs> I've got a photograph of the before and after cars. <laughs> <laughs> it looks slightly different. Mm, that's a little bit. A couple of matching panels, but that's about <laughs> it. You talked about the BMs before because that's kind of when the touring car stuff took. Why did you end up in BMWs? What was Because the, they were just the car to have at the time that Jim was going well. I, and, I, think, I think that, yeah, at the time they were – they were the successful car, I guess, overseas as well, not just here. Um, and uh, I ended up buying one from England that was that had been rebodied as a brand new shell, and and uh, bought it back for a Sandown race. And Andrew Medeke and I yeah. ran, ran it at Sandown. It was the bumper to bumper car, the yeah. yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. it still stands out. Stuff that, but a sponsorship in car racing from so many years ago. People remember that stuff. Like it's, it's well, burnt in the brain. Bump, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but bumper to bumper, didn't that end up going to um, super cheap autos? i got a weird feeling it does, but we're sponsored by Repco, so you're not allowed to say oh, that on okay, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, well, yeah, I think it got d- absorbed d- somewhere along the line. That, that. S- somewhere along the line it, it kind of got absorbed. but Because yep. didn't um, – yeah, I remember that you did a fair bit of racing in New Zealand. I think you won – did you win the New Zealand Touring Car Championship somewhere along the line? In, yeah, not I, the first year I was there, the second year. Mm, mm. And, and – but there was a trip to Fuji, wasn't there, where you – didn't you drive with Manuel Piro, the schnitzer? I, I ran the I ran the Bob Jane red red car, yeah. the Bob Jane team, that's BMW, at Bathurst. With Gary Rogers, yeah. With Gary, and um, then after that the car was sent up to Fuji and Piro flew out to drive Fuji. So I did that race up there and that was – yeah. That was sort of, but up there it was totally run by um, Charlie from Snitzer. Mm. So all the mechanics came out from over there, and so it was uh, it was pretty strong. I had a total different driving style driving with with a manuali, so I had to adapt to the car being set up totally different, mind you. It was a matter of getting used to it because it was certainly a lot faster. And so we finished second. That race it was mm. quite a, quite a big result. Um, I think the Jaguars were in it, and so yeah, I think Brock and Moffat were there. Gricey was there. It was kind of an end of year yep. type of race. So, and the beauty of Group A, you could come and go, and people could come here and have a go, and you could go there and have a go, and New Zealand, and buy cars out of Europe and England, and you know, it, see, it really still, opened up our eyes to the world yeah, that whole area, yeah, didn't it? True. But I still had my car, my BMWs then too. I hadn't sold them by then, and after Fuji. Like two or three weeks later, we're racing in Wellington, mm. and that's um, so I went over there to 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 do the last round of that because I think it because Fuji was a world touring car round. Bathurst, I oh, was the, the world championship was the next year. The next year, yeah. But it, like, people yeah. were coming out here, yeah. the European championship. Brock and Moffat and Grice at all mm. had a bash at it that year, and it was it was an exciting part to be racing touring cars around the world, like. And, you know, World Touring Cars was pretty well knocked on the head because Bernie didn't like mm. losing sponsorship and they didn't like the opposition being against Formula One. Mm. So um, that's the reason why it didn't mm. get a get a kick on. How was all that? Because you had red BMWs and who, how were you funding all that and how were you making all that happen? Well, the red cars were sponsored by New Zealand government. 
Hang on, what? You got <laughs> money out of the New Zealand government well, to go the guy car I was race. driving with me, uh, uh, Glenn McIntyre, um, in, 80, in 86 and 87 at, at Wellington and Pukeko in all those races. And we won some races and because back then this New Zealand Touring Car Championship was a dual driver thing, you know, like it was long distance races. So, um, yeah, he, he was he sponsor. It was the uh, State Coal. So it was the State Coal of New Zealand. Oh, nice. Which I I must admit it was hard to understand at the time because there was some uh, – they weren't travelling well. I think the coal mines were shutting down and somehow we were – I think coal were, will be a swear word in <laughs> we were running the next around, little while. We were running around with state coal sponsorship, so it's quite unique. Mm. It's – you know, I can't think of another coal sponsor in – Motorsport, no, although Cole's not. been helping fuel <laughs> pretty much nice. everybody along the way, would, isn't would it? Would have been nice to have BHP or something. Oh, wow. Ooh, that'd be a budget and a half. You could run an eight-car team at that, for sure. Um, 87, you drive for Dick, actually, don't you? The, the Sierras, at the, the that, Enduros that, that year. Yeah, well, that that was uh, – I think Neville organised that, Neville Crichton. Mm. And so I was asked to drive with Neville. Um so that was the world touring go around. It was, at, at yeah. Memphis, yeah. Yep, yep. And I don't uh, yeah, um, that was good. It was qualified the fastest Aussie at Bathurst, which was quite mm. good, fifth, fifth, and it was only the Europeans that were ahead. But I think at the time the fuel in the car was tested and it wasn't bought at the track. Dick had actually had some fuel in the car that came from Queensland, which was still the same fuel, but the fact that it wasn't the fuel bought at the track, and that was the rules at the time, you had to use the fuel at the track, and in the car was the, the fuel that came with the car down from Queensland, mm. or both both the shell cars, yeah. and we both got knocked out. Got flung out of the shootout and 9th and 10th, and then... Which is a bit of a shame, because, you know, if that hadn't happened and we hadn't started back there, maybe Neville and Lowry wouldn't have got together at the cutting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, could have gone on more than one lap. <laughs> mm, mm. It was a very short day. You didn't get a sweat up that day. No. 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 A few of those days there, Peter Williamson, the Toyota. I forgot about that one. So that was the start line crash in the Supra, wasn't it? Yeah. So, again, you didn't get a go. No, I was, I was straight, to the, straight to the hospitality market. <laughs> <laughs> Six beers in by yeah. lap 30. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so by this stage in the late 80s, I mean, you, 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 you co-drive – Again, with well, you, you drove with Medeki at Bathurst. That thing crapped itself on the first lap before you got to go in that. On the start. He, he limped it sort of not clutch. far up the hill. Yeah, yeah. So but by this stage, you're just you busy with other things in your world and you're just doing some oh, yeah, co-driving? I, I, or? I, had, I had other stuff on, but number one important thing was motor racing. Everything mm. else was back seat, mm. so to speak. Um, so it was, yeah. And, and, you know, and Bathurst, of course, was – a race that I grew up wanting to do well at and it really didn't eventuate <clears throat> and a lot of those times, you know, like step back, um, 79, A9X Tirana. I remember going down to Fisherman's Bend and picking up our all our allocation of, you know, brand new diffs and gearboxes for the, the trip up to Bathurst and they're all lined up in a, in a line. Could have had, you could have had the first one, you could have had the 10th one, it didn't matter. So I picked up four items each or whatever and took them away and at the end of the day whoever rebuilt them over tightened the pinion flange on our diff and it squashed the seal mm. and the seal lasted till an hour from the end of the race 
And we were pretty strong in second place behind Brock at the time. That was a year that he won by eight laps or something. Mm. So, <clears throat> the but if you'd picked the other one on the, I could have picked line. the other one. You could have picked and, any of them. And, and and one of Brock's mechanics could have picked that yeah, one. Yeah, who knows? But, you know, <laughs> it's just funny. I guess obviously was never meant to um, to win the race. So. Which was the everyone's got the one that got away. Which of the was there ever one that's a standout? Oh, that's the worst have, one to take. I would have to say. 97 with Longhurst, ran strong the whole day in the top five, I guess, places. Um, I remember it was a compulsory rotor change or pad a change. pad change. I think it came in that year, actually. That's right. Yeah. And the pads would have done the whole race anyway, and a pit stop halfway through, it was my suggestion that we should change pads now, not wait till the end. And they, we'd done that, so that was out of the way. And then Tony, like I was in the car at about lap 90, uh, from lap 30 to 90, I did a double stint. Tony got in the car and um, the thing was strong. It was, it was, it was firing uh, um, and Larry had to change pads. And so we were ahead of him on the road, but Larry, we had one more stop to make just for fuel tyres but Larry had pads to change which was going to certainly give us an advantage mm. and uh, the accelerator cable broke I'd probably say that's that was that was pretty disheartening mm. um, and would be, that was the last one that you did so well, it, was well, it a case of it just no no it wasn't the, the next year I remember I was being I was over in America at the time and I've been getting ready for it and training for it and Tony rings up with a month ago, and said he's decided to put Jeff in the car, and the whole the whole year it was about making amends for the year before the broken cable. Mm. Yeah, we're going to do it this year. This is this year, and one month before. So basically, Tony effectively cut my career short because I had no chance of getting another drive. And once you miss a year, you're was, sort of out of the, it was, it was, the flow it was, of it. It was, and... it was out of it. I didn't. You didn't want to. You didn't need to be missing it. And yeah, was at ninety seven, so I was. 42 or something at the time. So you didn't need to be missing a year, no. Mm. Mm. So that was a bit of a shame. Um, I, I thought that we had done so well the year before. I didn't quite understand why Jeff needed to be put on the car. Mm. Looking back at a couple of the, the other ones, well, those Sierras, lots of, I mean, you drove a few of them along the journey, but they seemed like a really – at the time, no one knew any different, but now everyone goes, oh, God, what a device, like seriously. I think the fact that they had their power band between four and 7,000 mm. and they were so short in the wheelbase and they weren't super wide tyres. So, they were, yeah, the, the worst part was trying to drive on the wet. Oof. And I remember when I, when I drove – when I drove – when Alan – well, Greg got me a, a – a, a drive with Alan in 91 of the Sierras and the Sonovas Sierras. Yeah, with Brancatelli, wasn't it? It was Brancatelli. And Brancatelli was brought out here thinking that Rudy Eckenberger was running the team. And I remember the look on his face when Alan told him that, no, I'm running the team. He couldn't come. <laughs> <laughs> he thought that was part of the deal. Yeah. Rudy didn't bring the bag of chips. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember it wasn't, wasn't then, I think it was 92 when we went back again, yeah, there wasn't enough wheels to, to have all the, all your wets mounted and all your dries mounted and everything else. And I remember driving around the pouring rain 
on slicks because nobody had any wets mounted for me. Oh, stay out, mate. Uh, we're just sorting yeah. you out. Yeah. And you know, like at the same at the time, I knew how far the Dunlop tent was away from the bits. <laughs> Not that long. I'm still going. <laughs> so you had a so between Dick Sierras, Medecky Sierra, Mobile Brock Sierras, Moffat Sierras. You had a bit pretty of much had a go at all of them, so you've, you're pretty pr- well, you know, had a bit of a Sierra time, pr- pretty it? well researched in uh, in having the experience in all of those different rigs. Yeah, and Andrew's Sierra was certainly uh, was good to drive. The, the shell car that year that was uh, that was pretty amazing too, um, but unfortunately we didn't get to use it too much on racing. And that's part one of my chat with Charlie O'Brien. Don't be sad, part one's over, but part two is to come. It will go live next week on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco, where there's lots more topics to chat about with Charlie, lots more stories. Make sure you don't miss it. We talk about NASCAR racing, both in Australia and in America. We talk about two-litre super touring racing BMWs and that virgin colder deal on the Gold Coast at the Surface Paradise Gold Coast Indy that many of you have asked about over the years. He tells us the story. Right, that's me done. Enjoy your week. Join us next time on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco.